Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The race is on to reach a crunch COP26 deal to prevent global climate disaster. We need action if commitments are to pass the credibility test. We need to hold each other accountable. We'll have the latest from Glasgow as the clock ticks down. Also tonight, Neffet tells government people should work from home to curb rising virus cases. And we'll take a look back at all the big news stories of the week. You can get in touch with your views on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. Climate talks at COP26 are entering the final stages in Glasgow ahead of the last day of scheduled talks tomorrow. However, time may be running out. The draft agreement is ready, but several key players want to negotiate the final outcome. Key issues remain to be decided, including emissions, fossil fuels and relief aid. A final draft agreement is now expected overnight. But our former president, Mary Robinson, says more still needs to be done. Despite some progress here, when Carbon Tracker came out yesterday with that uh, 2.4 degrees Celsius being the target, you know, my heart sank for, for our world. And that's why I think it's so important that leaders get into crisis mode. Well, a short time ago, I spoke to Metair and climate scientist John Hanley, who's in Glasgow at COP26, and I asked him about what direction the climate talks are going in. Yeah, so pre-conference, we had the IBCC report was released early on this year, and that told us that in terms of global warming, we've seen just over one degree of warming globally uh, compared to pre-industrial times. And in Ireland, we've seen a similar amount of warming as well. And then in terms of what we're trying to achieve here in Glasgow, we're trying to really achieve the key goals of the Paris Agreement from 2015. And the main goal there was to try and reduce greenhouse gas emissions globally in order to limit warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius and preferably to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, before COP, policies that were in place globally had us on track for something closer to 3 degrees Celsius of warming. And this would have enormous impacts uh, globally in every region of, of the world. And where we were then before COP in terms of the policies that have been announced um, in, in terms of the 2030 goals and in terms of the net zero goals by mid-century, we were looking at somewhere between maybe two, two and a half degrees Celsius of, of warming. So we were quite far away from the 1.5 degree target that Paris had set. And one of the key goals of this conference is to try and keep that 1.5 degree target alive. So we really need to bridge that or reduce those that gap between where we were before the conference and where we need to be, particularly between now and 2030, the next crucial 10 years, where we need to be in order to stay on track for 1.5 degrees 
uh, as, as outlined in the Paris Agreement. Yeah, as you've said, we're hearing so much about this 1.5 degrees of warming. Why is that particular figure so important? How do they come to that figure and why is it critical? Yeah, so as I mentioned, we're already at about one degree of warming globally, uh, just over that. And what we're already seeing, and we're seeing this play out across our news on a reasonably regular basis now at the moment, we're seeing significant impacts in terms of weather and climate extremes. And they're becoming more frequent, they're becoming more intense when they happen. And what we know from the climate science is that as we go to greater and greater warming, so as we go from one degree to 1.5 degrees, those impacts will really intensify. So those events will happen more regularly. And when they do happen, they'll be much more intense and they'll have much greater impact. And that increases then as you go to greater and greater warming. So the 1.5 degree threshold isn't in any way a sort of a safe limit or safe threshold, but it's what was agreed upon in Paris in order to try and limit the impacts from climate change that we're going to see globally and regionally, even here in Ireland. So what kind of impacts can we expect then in Ireland, even with that 1.5 degrees of warming? Yeah, so the main differences that we're going to see, or the main impacts that we can expect are it's going to get, continue to get warmer, at least in the short term. And we're already seeing changes there. So we can expect to see increases in terms of heat waves. They're going to become more frequent. They're going to become more intense when they do happen. And Ireland is also becoming wetter. And we've observed that already. But we can see that we expect that to increase as, as, as temperatures continue to increase. And when we say it becomes wetter, that's not going to happen just uniformly. So we're going to see more extreme rainfall in Ireland. Uh, we would expect to see. And that will increase the risk of flooding. And we will also expect to see an increase in the frequency of, of drought. And particularly, the signal is quite strong in the eastern part of the country. OK, well, thank you very much for your insights on that tonight. Uh, John Hanley, climate scientist with MetAaron. Thanks for joining us from Glasgow. Thank you, Claire. And I'm joined now by climate journalist John Gibbons and TD's Alan Farrell and Darren O'Rourke, climate spokespersons for Fine Gael and Sinn Féin. John, I want to come to you first because all eyes really are on COP26 over in Glasgow and this draft agreement we're expecting overnight, but it's so far from a done deal, isn't it? It really is. It's, it's still all to play for. Uh, we know the Chinese delegation are, are still involved in, in, in intense manoeuvring. Earlier today, it, it looked like they wanted the line, and it's just a line removed from the, from the, the agreement, uh, calling for the removal of oil and gas subsidies. Now, this is really cuts to the crux of the matter. Globally, we are subsidising fossil fuels. Governments around the world are subsidising fossil fuels to the tune of $5.9 trillion a year. Here in Ireland, we subsidise fossil fuels to the tune of 2.4 billion a year. As long as governments continue to pour vast amounts of subsidies into the fossil fuel industry, we have no chance of escaping from this because that industry is politically protected. It's also financially supported. And that industry is taking us down the road that John has just described. And if, Claire, I can... I can give you a very specific instance of what we're talking about here at two degrees. Now, two degrees is heading for us quite quickly. Now, the, the Hadley Centre, this is a meteorological centre in the UK, they issued a report earlier this week and they said that at two degrees centigrade of warming, one billion people will be exposed to the risk of what they call extreme heat events. These are heat events beyond the tolerance of humans. One thousand million people at two degrees centigrade. This is why to to re-echo what Mary Robinson said earlier, this is a crisis and our politicians, our, our media, our 
public officials, we have to understand we're in an emergency situation. And so far, that language has been rhetorical, but the, when the rubber hits the road, we're still not engaged with this as a full-scale global and national emergency. There's plenty of praise for the Taoiseach on, you know, those strong words. You're talking about the rhetoric on global pledges and what the world can do um, and, and some agreements that were forged between Europe and the US around uh, methane emissions and other matters. But how is that in the context of the national plan, in the context of what we're actually going to do here over the next 10 years? That's right. Michal Martin signed up to what was called the 30% by 2030 methane pledge. And the reason this is important is that methane, while it's a trace gas, it does wash quickly from the atmosphere, relatively quickly, compared to CO2. So if you cut methane by 30% by 2030 globally, you can achieve, you can shave about 0.2 degrees off that target that we, we, we discussed earlier. Now, we can do that, and in Ireland, of course, 90% of our methane in Ireland comes from uh, livestock. Yet when Michal Martin came back to Ireland to discuss the implementation of the deal that he signed up to, he said that the methane target for agriculture in Ireland would be 10%. Now, essentially, how can we possibly take anything seriously from our politicians? When they go to Glasgow, they get the Glasgow fever and they sign up for the 30%, then they come home and turn around to the lobbyists and say, don't worry about it, how does 10% sound? 10% by 2030 is entirely inadequate, and they know that. It also makes, makes a hames of our Climate Action Plan targets to 2030. Unless we tackle methane as a critical uh, greenhouse gas in our agriculture systems, we are basically we've already thrown our, our climate targets for 2030 overboard. Alan Farrell, as climate spokesperson um, within government, what do you say to that? I mean, as I said, big words from Michal Martin on the global stage, but when it comes to our plan, we're not doing enough, are we? Well, I think, uh, good evening to you, Claire. I, th I think there's a huge amount in the Climate Action Plan, um, a lot of which, unfortunately, is going to be reached towards 2050. Um, in terms of the changes that we're going to have to make initially in the, in the first nine years of the plan up to 2029, 20, 2030, there's going to have to be significant changes in how we uh, go about our business as a state, how we as individuals and how companies operate in terms of their carbon emissions. There are huge supports going to be provided and to go to some of the emissions targets that have been set out, the, mm. the carbon budgets, which will be set by the Oireachtas in the coming months, which will be agreed by the Oireachtas, and achieved uh, next year uh, will be subject to huge scrutiny by sectoral committees and indeed okay, by the so committee that, that Darren and I work on. In specifically terms of, on the in, methane and the 10% when, yeah. it's, when it's 30% so, globally. So there's a slight difference and, and I, I would err to, to, on, to John's expertise, but my understanding is in, in the area of methane is that a lot of the targets that are being set uh, in, in other countries outside of our jurisdiction, you would have uh, industrial methane that is being generated from industry as opposed to methane that is being generated by the farming sector. And I understand that while they are the same gas, they are being treated differently in terms of the targets that we have set 
both uh, in the acclimatise uh, uh, strategy in the Department yes. of Agriculture See, last year and indeed our own climate action targets. See, that's confusing for people. It is very confusing. We're talking about, and John has just outlined there, what it means if we've two degrees of warning. Yes. Uh, and then we, we heard, we well, Claire, heard from it's Glasgow. Not the it's not the only measure that we will take in it's the coming years. It's not the years. only measure, but we, need there to are be, very, we I mean, surely need to be more ambitious in terms of what we do. We do and we are. And the, agric the agricultural sector emits about 30% of our carbon emissions. The transport sector emits about 20% of our emissions. And we are, uh, as part of this climate action plan, setting out an ambitious strategy to reach our targets for 2030 and ultimately to get to net zero in 2050. Will you go higher than 10% than on the cut in methane emissions? I think if it's achievable, absolutely. But we have to remember that the food sector is critical both to rural Ireland and indeed to our economy. And there are other means of us reducing uh, our carbon emissions in that sector, other than specifically methane. Okay, would would, would you agree um, with that? I mean, what's the Sinn Féin position on all of this, yeah, Darren? Well, because it, it, people aren't very clear on where you're coming from in terms of a, a climate policy. Um, and, and seeing yourself maybe in power in the future, you'll be the one holding the reins on this and holding all these sectors to account and trying to get these emissions down. Well, I think we can point to a, a very significant job of work in terms of our contribution at every step of the, the road in relation to both the pre-legislative scrutiny of the Climate Bill, amendments to the Climate Bill, engagement with the Climate Bill, engagement with the, the committee in terms of a, a significant piece of work in terms of transport emissions, uh, engagement in terms of the circular economy Lots bill. Of engagement, and, yeah, but does but, that mean you know, agreement with the way the government is doing things or do you think we need to be more ambitious? So, so, so I think, um, you know, putting the structures in place uh, it was an important step and obviously we have we made very many amendments that weren't accepted by government um, uh, uh, to, to make that point. But we, we have a, a Climate Advisory Council um, that provides a scientific basis. Um, and we will go now and negotiate the, and discuss the budgets, uh, which will, will identify the sectoral ceilings. But sec you must have been thinking ceilings. about this for a while. It's certainly been on the news agenda, but even before that, for a party that would say we are invested in, oh, in, no. in addressing the climate problem, absolutely. you must a have absolutely. been thinking about what each sector oh, for, needs to do. Oh, for so sure. Do you think for enough sure. is being done? For, for, for sure. And I, and I think actually a, a point to make, there's huge agreement on very many of the measures that need to, need to, need to be taken here in terms of you know, the move to renewables, the uh, investment in public transport, the, the move to, towards public transport, um, you know, microgeneration, the, the, the whole suite of measures, I think, that, you know, electric vehicles, uh, retrofitting of homes, there's, there's agreement in relation to that. I suppose what we have called for consistently is, is the impetus and energy from, from government and, and indeed many of the sectors themselves, whether it's the wind energy sector or the, the renewable sector, have, have pointed towards the, you know, the, the various hurdles that remain remain there. So there's, I think there's lots of low-hanging fruit that the government haven't yet um, uh, taken. And I think there's an opportunity there to bring people with you uh, on this journey. And yeah. I think that's a really important part to, you, to you it. Know, you know, listening to both Darren and Alan, I'm not getting a huge diversion, actually, in thought on the way um, this, this plan is going to play out or the idea that we have to, to solve the problem, John. Do you think... Um, that, that the plan that's in place will do the job. If I could just take up uh, some of the language that Darren used there, he described a, a journey. We're not on a journey. We were on a journey 20 years ago. We're now in a race. 
right? And we've got to set targets and meet targets and hard targets. And I think the question I would have for Darren is, in say in relation to the, the methane issue, I mean, this didn't happen by accident. This was, ha this was done by design. This was government policy. Well, it was industry policy adopted by Fine Gael-led governments from 2010. We've increased our national herd by 500,000 cows since 2015. Chagas roadmap tells us we're going to add an additional 200,000 cows by 2027. Now, they, that type of expansion, that aggressive expansion, is completely incompatible with our national climate targets. Now, I think that's fair enough. If Fine Gael, if that's what they want to sign up for and, and that's okay, well then, let's forget about our climate targets. And it's the big question as well for Sinn Féin is, do you accept this? Are you okay that we're throwing our climate targets away because we regard the, the untrammeled expansion of one subsector of agriculture to be more important than averting climate disaster? That's the question on the table. No, well, I, I, to say that what we're dealing with at the minute are proposals, not from Sinn Féin or in fairness from Fine Gael or other members of, of government, they're proposals from the, the Climate Advisory Council. They have set the range in terms of of where agriculture and the different sectors have to go. We will thrash that out and, and identify the sectoral ceilings. I think the real question that has to be answered in relation to, to agriculture, because I, I understand the concerns that are there in, in the agricultural community, because, because what they've been said is, we have been incentivized to move in a certain direction. We've, yeah. been, we've, we've, okay. we've been walked to a cliff edge, and now you're asking us to walk over the cliff edge. So I, I say to government, where, what, what is the alternative? What is the sustainable solution that, in my opinion, it needs to do, it needs to do a number of things. It needs to provide um, a, a livelihood for our farming families, and also it needs to maintain the connection with the land. I think those are the fundamental okay. issues that, they are, they are the things, in my I opinion, that, that farming communities well, want. Well, let's get government on that. Look, what John's outlined there about, you know, um, expansion that's been going on for so long, and now we're, we're turning it round, but we're not necessarily turning it around to the extent that we need to. So there's an, and what Sinn Féin would say about an unfair burden on ordinary people. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an unfortunate argument going on um, at the moment, and I suppose it's been happening for maybe a year, and it is an attempt to scapegoat a particular sector that they have done something or are doing something wrong. And I don't think that that's fair. I don't come from an agricultural background. I live in, live in Malahide. Uh, the, the closest thing to agriculture that I see is, is fishing and horticulture. But, you know, this negative commentary can be damaging, but it is unfair. If I can just talk but about just what Mary Robinson said, if I could. If yeah, I, could. I do just Mary, briefly Mary want to Robinson say that, said that, that you couldn't point. negotiate uh, with science. And what the government have done is that they are proposing to take a scientific approach. So that is things like uh, removing nitrogen from, from fertilising over the next number of okay. years, which will have a really significant impact. Um, things like forestry uh, to give farmers options uh, in terms of the land that they're using, in terms of grass and how it is fertilised, okay. among other things. So there, there are genetic and sort of scientific approaches like yes. the genetics of, of farming, uh, particularly in relation to livestock. This all has a benefit to our climate action target. Very briefly, look, because it's a big deal. It's a big deal when you're talking about transport, for one. And we spent a while talking about the agriculture sector. But John, just on that note, it's huge to get people away from their cars, isn't it? The alternatives just aren't there right now. Where's the incentive? Yeah. 
And I think if we are looking towards a 2030 transition of replacing one or two million uh, internal combustion engine cars with one or two million EVs, electric vehicles, we're, we're barking up the wrong tree. We need a modal shift. And this can only happen when we have serious, and I mean really serious, joined up thinking and investment. And I think that also needs to go all the way down to individual councils who, for example, might find themselves opposing uh, cycle lanes, as we saw here in Dublin. Cycle lanes that were being proposed, say, in Dean's Grange, to actually get school children to their schools were opposed by local councillors. Now, we've really got to get our heads together at national level and at local level. Politicians need to get real because the children who they're, they're we need to facilitate them in, in active transport mm. for health reasons, for, for social reasons, and of course for climate reasons. These are also the people, more than anyone around this table, who are going to be impacted negatively, severely negatively. The younger you are, the greater a threat to your life and livelihood okay. climate change is in the future. So I really think we need to act on this and act now. Okay, well, we want to bring in Troca's head of policy, Siobhan Curran, who's just back tonight from COP26 in Glasgow. She joins me now. Um, Siobhan, what did you make of what you saw there over the past few days in terms of wrangling negotiations and indeed access to, to people uh, and making the change that's needed? Yeah, well, I mean, um, the, there's probably two cops. I think there's inside the blue zone, as it's called, where the world leaders were making their pledges, where there was flurries of people, you know, surrounding people who arrived in. The negotiations took place there. Um, and then there's outside the cop. Um, and that's where a lot of activism took place where there was, you know, I mean, the, the mobilization of hundreds or of thousands of people, um, 100,000 people on the streets of Glasgow on Saturday. Uh, and in a way, you know, that probably symbolized the disjuncture between, you know, this public demand for urgency and to deal with this climate emergency. And then a feeling that maybe inside the halls of COP that things were moving a little too slowly. Um, I think a massive failing of this COP has been around participation. A lot of people from the Global South couldn't make it to the COP. Um, this was highlighted in advance that it would be an issue in the context of COVID and vaccine inequity. Um, and then while at the COP, there were major issues for civil society in accessing um, uh, sessions as observers for negotiations um, and actually at times getting into the venue itself. Um, so I think that will be a massive failing um, identified with this COP and will need to be addressed because it, what it has resulted in is it the exclusion of voices who need to be central to the discussion. Um, and it does under, undermine the credibility of, of the discussions. OK, well, let's talk about you know, what you're seeing on the ground in some of the poorer countries of the world, because that's where climate change is really playing out, isn't it, Siobhan? Yeah, I mean, um, we're working with communities around the world who have been feeling the impacts of climate change for some time. Um, you know, we work with uh, partners in Malawi and Rwanda who are actually at the COP um, and there to advocate for real change because they're experiencing drought, they're experiencing flooding, they're working with communities whose homes have been lost. Um, you know, and so it's devastation. People are losing, losing their livelihoods right now. And I think that's what we saw at this COP. We saw the urgency from developing uh, from developing countries who were saying we're being impacted right now we're experiencing major losses loss and damage uh, we need support this is not an issue for tomorrow um, and there, there was a real um, so I think there was a real demand from developing countries for developed countries to meet uh, particularly climate financing needs um, and this came out really really strongly.
And we do know that uh, the finances are still at the heart of this in terms of uh, securing and negotiating that deal. For now, we'll have to leave it. Uh, my thanks to Siobhan Curran there from, from Trocra. And my thanks indeed to John Gibbons. Alan and Darren are staying with me. And uh, coming up next, Neffet puts working from home back on the agenda as virus cases surge. Stay with us. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Now, new Neffet advice to government says people should work from home where possible after the recent rise in virus cases. Earlier, the HSE chief executive, uh, Paul Reid, backed that idea. Yeah, for us in the health system, and we will leave any policy decisions from government in relation to uh, working from home mandate or policy decisions, but what we would encourage where it is possible for anybody to do it, the higher level where people are meeting or congregating in meetings at work, uh, creates further risk. So to the greatest extent possible that people can work from home, it is beneficial for ourselves in the health service. Well, TD's Alan Farrell and Darren O'Rourke are still with me. And we're also joined now by Sunday Times journalist Mark Tai. And Mark, if I can come to you first, this advice that Neffet is going to give to government, it's not really surprising, is it, coming from them? Like, they've, they've, they've come out in press conferences now in recent days expressing concern about these rising numbers, talking about dialing back social contacts, um, meeting half the people you, you, you were planning to meet. So this call now to work from home not really coming as much of a surprise to people. Yeah, I suppose it's, it's not clear what's in Neffet's armoury, given they've kind of ruled out going back into any sort of lockdown mode. But there are, there's still, I suppose, from people, or obviously people are fatigued by all the uh, pandemic restrictions. And now we're having suggestions, you know, to, to work from home where possible. It's, there, there's still a lot of mixed messaging because Stephen Donnelly only recently said, you know, that that's not something he envisioned. So, you know... This morning? I, yes, that recently. So things are changing rapidly. Mm. Um, Ireland is, and if you look across Europe, Ireland is up there at the top tier in terms of the, the level of um, the virus that's in the, the population. And also we've got one third of our ICU beds now occupied by people who have COVID. So it is worrying that 
the despite our you know record levels of uptake across Europe for the uptake of the vaccines that we're still seeing this level of the prevalence of COVID across the population. Yeah, I just look, you know, you mentioned there about mixed messaging. It's been something that's just following us really through this pandemic. And Alan Farrell, like when you heard Stephen Donnelly saying earlier today, no, we're not actively considering that work from home policy. And now we have never... The letter, I understand, was only issued this evening. Yeah, but sure, it's been teed up since yesterday. Maybe that, that is the case, but, but government can only consider something when it's in front of them. They don't I talk don't to each other, do they not? I'm, they do talk to one another, but you, you would have to realise the question he was asked, the context in which the question was asked and the context in which the answer was given. He wasn't, they were, the government are, were not considering it. They will now have to consider it on receipt of the letter. But I should point out, it was only sent this evening. I haven't seen it. I haven't, I haven't read an article about it, although I'm sure many have been written. Uh, but the opportunity here for us to evaluate what Paul, Paul Reid said and what indeed the letter, uh, as it will be, I'm sure, revealed um, uh, across, across the papers and, and the news tomorrow. We, we have an opportunity to, to evaluate what Paul Reid said in terms of unnecessary uh, contacts, discretional contacts, mm in terms of adherence to the public health guidelines that are being put out there. But most importantly, the pressure that's been put on our hospital sector, in particular ICU, um, which is, of course, a concern. You know, we're back up to yes. numbers that we haven't seen since the start of the year. And that was a massive shock to everybody. Again, it was predictable. You could see it, it coming. It was predictable. It was predictable. This is the point, isn't it? it coming. In and, terms of planning for the winter well, ahead. It, it, look, it's a, we're in a very different place from we were la at the beginning of this year towards and, and, and toward the end of last year. We now have vaccines across an enormous number of people right across um, every pocket of the country. And we are seeing benefits from the vaccination programme and the speed at which it was rolled out. But what we are seeing, unfortunately, uh, our um, uh, increased contacts, particularly in that 19 to 24 age group, which I think Tony Hulan has pointed out, yeah. has increased at a dramatic rate. And we need to understand. And, but that's and, hardly a surprise when the decision surprise, was made no. to reopen clubs, reopen but, but society and fully. COVID, COVID certificate compliance, for instance, yeah. is an issue. We had the meeting yesterday, which revealed, uh, along with government figures, that revealed that uh, two thirds of establishments are checking for for COVID passports, and that was a, a, a survey done on the on the premises themselves. And then the users of such premises were surveyed as well, and also revealed that two thirds were being asked for their certificate. But that means that third one aren't. third of people uh, and establishments are not checking or providing their COVID certificates. Claire, I can tell you that I went to a movie in North Dublin. The only reason my certificate was checked was because I presented it. Okay, so your point being compliance point is an being issue. My point being is that compliance is a massive issue. Okay, look, I want to just go back to this advice about working mm. from home. What would Sinn Féin think of that, given that this push has been from government, you know, from the end of September, I think they were saying, and it was a move for employers and, and just to get things back on track, 50%, I think, of people are now working from a workplace. Is it the right move now to tell them essentially to go home? Well, well, I think we, we need to, to hear from Neffet, but I, I have to say I think it's incredibly unhelpful. The, again, mixed messages uh, for whatever reason, but that's exactly it. I, I have, across my whole area, um, business owners contacting me, and I'm sure it's the same right across the country, wondering what the week after next is going to look like, Wonder what, wondering what sort of footfall there will be, wondering how many people will be working in offices, how many people will be there, how many staff they will need. 
Um, and that's the type of uncertainty that comes with the approach that th that's been taken. And, and it's a feature. It's a feature every step of the way. It's not three weeks ago that we were having the same conversation with, you know, the, with nightclubs and a lack of regulations and the regulations didn't come in until well after the 11th hour. And it is hugely frustrating. And, and, and at the root of it, uh, at least a significant a rising part of COVID it, infections. Uh, and a complete, and it, a yeah. complete lack of investment in our acute hospital service. So in the budget, Sorry, which Karen, was six weeks ago, just did not provide for an, did not provide for an additional uh, inpatient acute hospital bed, a number of ICU beds, and in in the, my local hospital, this government is proposing to close ICU beds and an A and E. What would you say to that, Alan Farrell? I, I would say that the the HSE has a has a hundreds of millions of euros worth of capital investment already uh, invested in our health service over the past eighteen to twenty four months, and prior to that, there have been well, hundreds. Why do we of, have this problem have now? Hundreds, I mean, the reason that there these, these decisions have, have to be made is because the of pressure on the hospital system. Head of population. Now, how do we do? COVID has, has of course exposed a number of difficulties in our health service in terms of the number of ICU beds when we compare ourselves to other jurisdictions. And there's lots of historic reasons for that. Lack of investment what, is the main one. But what the HSE should be praised for, to be fair, is what they did when they received an appropriate level of funding specific for the purposes of investment in ICU. So there has been a very significant number of ICU beds made available over the course of this pandemic. They will be sustained because a bed isn't just a bed and a room. So there's going also, to be no problem with there's six, going to be no problem with capacity. You're saying six nurses. I'm not saying this because COVID is 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 the is the is the common denominator in in terms of how we as a state and how the health it's service responds to, a responds to uh, uh, increases. So in are COVID. you saying that with the investment with the investment that's been put into our hospitals this winter, capacity is just not going to be an issue? Well, if you look at the overall budget that we have now allocated, it's over twenty billion euros. It's the highest it's ever been, and it's been sustained. There, there are close the to reason, a people The reason the reason for lists. that is because uh, be, because, close to a million because hospitals couldn't take. There's unnecessary and uh, non-essential surgeries for, the, we, for almost a year so, and a half. So many, how many so new, of course there's going to be a knock-on hospital beds were provided I don't have for the in the budget? Zero, me, I have Darren. it. Zero, well, no. zero. Well, I actually remember this coming up in leaders' questions and I remember the Taoiseach's response. He talked about ICU beds. He there talked about... Zero I, beds, zero new inpatient uh, acute beds. There, and, and, I, I, can reiterate, the, I can reiterate, I don't like repeating myself, but I can reiterate what I said already. In, when this government, so, when in 2011, when we started this process of restoring our economy and rebuilding our public services, uh, we invested heavily in the in the HSE, in our hospital sector, and there have been hundreds of beds added right across the country. And yes, well, I can there have you. been rationalisations of certain I can hospitals, tell you. I, but there has also been hundreds of millions, if not billions of euros invested in the... But we are facing a point that we may have to cancel elective surgery and all this sort of We're thing, because there. our hospitals aren't fit for purpose. This, like They're not able to handle a huge surge in COVID numbers coming in, dealing with people who need to go to ICU Please point out a health service that can, Claire. Well, you other know, the, countries the, the, can do it better than we can. Well, but maybe, that is, maybe that is true, but I think a lot of those scoliosis I think a lot of those countries, I think a lot of those countries have a far higher base upon which to operate in terms of, of, uh, of population and, and thus 
uh, income and that re results okay. well, in... Well, it's all down to what we spend, isn't it, on our health services? Of course, and, and, and as I said already, we're spending the most that we have ever spent on our health services. Um, look, that's the defence from government around this, but like in practical terms then, Mark, when we, we talk about the, the measures that may have to be taken, already we're seeing this work from home coming back on the agenda. We were told there would be no further restrictions. That can't be, that can't be ruled out at all in the run-up to Christmas now, can it, Mark? I don't think so. And you can see um, there was a survey done by one newspaper last week of uh, big companies in terms of Christmas parties and things like that. And I think none of the corporates want to go there because they're afraid, you know, of having been labelled in the media or among, you know, their cohort of workers as a super spreader event. So you can see this is happening, you know, where and a lot of restaurants, you know, Christmas time um, is their busiest time of the year. And you can see that there's just cancellations happening already. And there's a lack, I suppose, of... Um, surety as to, as to what the rules will yeah. be and people are are maybe just organizing things ad hoc because people are sick i suppose like in my own case you know i think we've met up maybe twice in the last two years as a you know with two leave and do's from the sunday times but you know there, there's no kind of um people aren't meeting each other and meeting on zoom people are sick to death of yeah. zoom meetings so there is a real desire for people to meet up you know for a quiet drink or a, a bit of food and you know, be able to meet them face to face instead of over Zoom. Yeah, just a quick one on that. Like we saw, you know, over 51,000 people gathering for a match in the Aviva yes. or in Portugal uh, tonight. And yet the message then is also, well, work from home if you can. So you can work from home and then you can go to a match like that and gather well, in crowds. Yeah, is that I, right? I, 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 there, there, there's certainly a, a juxtaposition there to, to be evaluated. No, but it it's is huge. Out, it's it, not Claire, just that match. Claire, it is it's outside. going out. It's, say, working from home and then meeting your pals but, in the but, pub. But it is What's outside. What's going to happen now in the run-up to Christmas? Yeah, it, so that event is outside. And there is a huge difference between an outdoor event and an indoor event. And I think the biggest difficulty, particularly at wintertime, is that you know, we all go indoors, we close the doors, we close the windows, and that is cause for concern. I think in terms of the Neffet letter, in terms of the potential for working from home or the recommendation for it, government will have to consider it. I presume it'll be next week at this stage. I presume it'll be rubber stamped. Perhaps uh, they haven't departed from the advice of Neffet since last year. So I think we can, we can hope that was a disaster um, but, when they did it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, and government no should, should, should ramp up the the booster campaign as well. Make preparations now. It took a, you know Agreed. there was a delay in 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 uh, the rollout for for frontline health staff. It just needs to be ramped up at, the, at this stage okay. and preparation. Okay, there we'll have to leave it. My thanks to Alan and to Darren. Mark is staying with us because coming up next we take a look back at the big news stories of the week. Stay with us. Welcome back. Mark Ty is still with me and we're also joined by journalists Ger Herbert and Catherine Sands for our weekly look back at the big stories of the week. And Ger, I want to come to you first. There's been lots of talk about COP26 and what's going to happen. I'm sure you drove in here on an electric vehicle, did you? I did actually, yes. Yes, great. And uh, that's good. And, and, and the, the country, the government wants more people like you um, to adopt these cars and bring down the emissions. But what's really the big plan about what's going to happen here with all of that? 
Well, I suppose globally what we see in COP26 was there was the Glasgow Declaration for Zero Emissions, and this was basically an attempt to get as many countries and as many car makers on site and to commit to actual zero emissions, as in the end of petrol and diesel by 2040. Now, the good news is 33 um, countries and a number of car companies did sign it. I suppose the downside is Volvo, or uh, Volkswagen and Toyota, the two major car companies, didn't sign. And also the US, China, France and Germany didn't commit either. So we're getting there, but it's going to take a while. The other problem, I suppose, is in terms of the wording, it was working towards a 2040 end. It's not a definite commitment. But I mean, I, I take it as a positive, Claire, you know, the, the right moves are happening. Yeah, it's funny because there is so much like global pressure on this and we're hearing all the leaders standing up saying good things. But when it comes down to it, these car companies can essentially do what they like. Yeah, and I think it's very easy to view all of this through a European prism. And we're doing well in Europe and we're on target to, you know, for the 2030 ban here and the 2035 in Europe. But we can't forget the likes of Africa is a dumping ground for cars that can't be sold anywhere else. You know, the cars are 25 years old there. In Australia, they have, you know, very, very minor ambitions towards an electric future. So it's, you know, it's a global challenge. It's not going to be solved. And you can see why car makers in some way are reluctant because there is a market for their cars after 2030 and 2035 on a global scale. Yeah, um, I just want to move on to a big story, a story really that dominated this week, and that's the death of Sean Fitzpatrick. We're very conscious, of course, that there is a grieving family at the heart of all this. Um, but it brought into focus again the legacy of Sean Fitzpatrick and of Anglo-Irish Bank and its collapse what it cost the taxpayer and ultimately where it's led the country, Mark. Yeah, um, obviously very sad. He was still quite a young man. Um, I, I, I would have met him many times covering his trials, his two big trials down in Central Criminal Court. He was always kind of an incongruous person to be in there, you know, always very dapper. Um, you know, he, he spent over a year of his life down there coming in and out. And, you know, he was always, I always, he struck me as a very lonely person. You know, his daughter, Sarah, would be there to keep him co a company. Mm. I remember one time a, a former business colleague came in and that was, a, that was a standout moment because normally he wouldn't have had any colleagues there and he'd, ha he'd happily share lunch with you and have a chat, you know, and he'd be talk about his schemes, how they were going to, you know, take the case down. And to be, like, the, he had two different cases against him. One was the, how the Anglo uh, had financed its own share prices, uh, its, its borrowers buying its shares to prop up the, the bank's uh, stock market valuation. And there, he was nowhere near that. He should never have been charged for that, really. He was chairman mm -hmm. at the time. The second case, he was incredibly lucky. He was uh, doing this bed and breakfast deal where he was um, you know, putting his loans off the books overnight with, um, and then bringing them back in the next day. And so he was keeping shareholders and the public in the dark about his own loans and he's incredibly lucky that you know the ODC solicitor shredded records and the case never went to the jury after five months so he got off there like he really you know if you're being honest there I think he, he knows himself he was incredibly lucky he didn't uh, that didn't go to jury and didn't have a guilty sentence and go to jail and you know he, he took a lot of hits over you know as everyone knows he was the poster boy but he was by far uh, n not the most serious offender in, in, in Irish life and around that you know Celtic Tiger era and you know people like Sean Quinn, uh, who you know did so much to hide his assets, subsequently you know, and he the only time he spent in jail was for contempt of court. You know, so there's a lot of issues and people who had maybe more blame for the bank's collapse I think, than Sean Fitzpatrick. Right. Okay. And a lot of key players and a lot of names you're saying, funnily enough, came back onto the news agenda because you mentioned there Sean um, Quinn and 
how his family essentially went to court to to delist themselves and this whole idea about the right to be forgotten. What do you make of the way um, that case played out and indeed that decision um, to take Google, to take these stories that, that referring to the Quinn family that they wanted to be forgotten about off the, off the search engine altogether? Yeah, so the right to be forgotten in its current iteration extends back to 2014 when the Court of Justice for the European Union uh, found that individuals are allowed, they have a right to ask a search engine to delist something from the internet. So it's worth mentioning that it doesn't remove the information from the internet or from the site that it's on, but it will remove it from a search. Um, so the Quinn family applied. Now there are a set of restrictions that are supposed to be applied. That's supposed to be information that's inaccurate, uh, irrelevant, or no longer relevant, I think are the categories. Um, and there should also be a public interest test that's balanced against this. So we don't know yet what the reasons were for these applications, what the grounds that they used to justify this are. Um, but we do know quite a lengthy list of articles were delisted, one of which involved a, a wedding cake that was 100,000 euro, uh, and that was paid for by the Quinn family. There was another one. All of them mainly were court reports. So it will be interesting to hear more about what these applications, what the basis was for them. Yeah, the why, I suppose, as to, to how they could do that. Like, it's interesting that the stories haven't gone away. It's just going to be much harder to find them. Yeah, in Europe especially, too. That's also worth clarifying because the GDPR rule that's enshrining this is based for European searches. So if you search for the Quinn family from a Google IP address in the States, you'll still find all those listings. So it's the GDPR that allows this, which is interesting because it opens up a whole argument over whether GDPR or data protection rules are preceding freedom of expression or which is more important. Yeah, it's, I, I find it very worrying that Google, you know, this behemoth, you know, I don't know, maybe DuckDuckGo, but very few people use other search engines. So yeah, it hasn't, these stories are still online, but it's very hard to find them if you use Google as your search engine. So it's very worrying that Google will take this decision to say, no, let's put that down the memory hole. Uh, you can't find this stuff about how Sean Quinn acted really inappropriately and, you know, all this mad stuff they did with all their money and how they hid all these assets from what was the Irish state when, you know, when Anglo were taken nationalised, we went searching for where, where the money had gone and we found they had all sorts of hijinks to, to hide these assets from the, from the state. And for Google to take the decision, no, we can't, we can't read about that now. I think it's, 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 um, it's a very worrying development. Yeah, would you agree with that, Jared? Do you think there needs to be an overhaul in the way this is looked at, at, at how easily, I suppose, people can go out and, and delist themselves and essentially um, arguing that this right to be forgotten is something that's valid for them? Yeah, I mean, exactly like Mark, I find it astounding that if, if you know, if regulators were going to, to allocate this role to somebody that went to Google, I mean, it just seems the most bizarre thing ever. You know, balancing uh, the right to privacy and what is of, of public interest, it, you know, it's a difficult enough thing to do, but here we have a, a for-profit organisation making those decisions. There appears to be no real transparency in how the decisions are arrived at. I think up to 45% of, um, of the requests are actually accepted. I know they deal with a huge number every day. So, I mean, there's huge questions to be asked about this. Yeah, I feel it's only the tip of the iceberg on that one. Um, just looking to uh, a story as well that is hardly surprising given that inflation has hit um, a 14-year high mark, but we're seeing it playing out in housing in this country and in rent rises, which, you know, jumped significantly um, in the space of three months. It'll be no surprise to many people looking to rent. Yeah, it's, it's obviously there's still supply and demand issues are, are you know, eating away at the system, you know, there isn't enough property available for rent or for sale. I'm, I'm we're house hunting at the moment. I was, I was saying to, 
to, at, at, you know, I work in, in my bedroom at the moment when I'm working from home and it's just not, it's not working. So we're trying to get a bigger house and it's just awful being out there again. Like it's, I'm lucky, uh, like we bought our house back in 2010. So we're on the property market. And we're trying to get a slightly bigger house for our, our, our family. And it's awful being out there, you know, we're trying to find a house. You're finding yourself being gazumped, you know, by huge amounts when you put in an offer. So for people renting, I've nothing but sympathy for them. And for people who are like me, house hunting at the moment, it's just not a nice place. There's just, there's so few properties actually on the market. I was talking to someone in DNG earlier in the week and they said the number of houses are about 50 to 75% uh, down on what was on the market last year, even in the middle of the pandemic. So it's just, it's again, and it, this is something the government has to get their, their head around and, and get action on because it's, I think it's the number one issue along with health. Um, the, the, our, our broken housing system, you know, where there's not enough houses in the, where people want to live them and the, 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 the costs and the, are, are just astronomical. And of course, the problem is here now, but whatever is done, that can't be solved tomorrow. So you're going to have this issue. Another point that, that, that has been made, and we saw it, um, some, someone tweeted into the show, about making that very valid point that there's actually a group of people uh, age 19 to 24 that represent sort of another baby boom, these kids that were born during the noughties, they're about to enter that system. They're about to look to rent, to get on in life. While it might be hard for people in their 20s and 30s, there's going to be more than them than ever trying to fit themselves into this same system that, as Marcus said, is broken. Yeah, and if they're working entry-level jobs or if they're students, you know, I, I honestly don't know how they're going to be able to make ends meet in Dublin. It's really, really difficult. Yeah, and no end in sight, it appears to that, and, and fears as well about inflation um, and the cost of living extending right into next year. We're seeing that everywhere, aren't we, like consumer-wise in, in, in terms of what we're paying for um, at the moment, Ger. Oh yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the housing as well, what always amazes me is we have this housing crisis and then we're trying to solve a transport issue problem as well. And I mean, they're both incredibly linked. You know, the more we push people away from cities because they can't afford the houses there, they're going further and further, they're commuting longer distance. And yet we seem to treat these as two isolated issues. Okay, well, that is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast. I'd like to thank all my panel tonight. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the late team here... Good night and take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.